0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Progress City Radio Hour. I'm Jeff Crawford, and with me is my brother, Michael. How are you doing, Michael? I'm well. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to hear part two of this conversation with Frank Stanek. Now, part one, you should go back and check out for sure, but this, it really gets going through Walt Disney World through the second half of his Disney career. That's right, Frank, uh, we
1: gave the full bio in the previous episode, so you should definitely check that out. It covers about the first 10 years of his career, but 25 years at Disney, and then a lot of success at Universal after that, and uh, on his own as a contractor, which he continues to this day, and the 2013 Thea Buzz Price Award for Lifetime Achievement, so... A lot of experience under
0: his belt, and we were very glad to speak with him. Now Frank asked us to get his back on this, so I have to give a disclaimer. When we're talking about Disney World, there's a couple of road names, and you know, Frank hasn't you know, he worked down there in the sixties even. He says five twenty eight, which is actually five thirty-five, and his five thirty-five is one ninety-two for any of you Central Floridians listening. Yes and in his defense i live down here and i get them confused all the time so yes (laughs) but we mostly hope you enjoy this it was a real pleasure to to listen to frank's stories we really again appreciate the time he took to sit down with us so without further ado here is the second part of michael's interview with frank stanick
1: So I was interested in uh, what you said about your work with Marvin Davis in the early days when you came to Wed, and I just wondered what the state of Walt Disney World planning was at that time, what uh, progress they had made, and what it looked like at that point.
2: When I arrived at fourteen hundred one Flower, the the new Wed building, you know, people were arriving and being settled into office spaces and work areas, etc. And I had assumed that that facility had only been in use for 30 or 60 days prior to my arrival there. So the setup for Walt Disney World was really yet to start with any seriousness other than the work that Marvin Davis had been doing uh, assisted by George Rester, who was an architect that was doing the final land use layouts based upon Mar- the direction. And Marvin pretty much was doing the conceptual stuff. He'd do sketches and so forth. But it was really Marvin communicating with with Walt himself about the major components of the project and, you know, sort of trying to figure out where Epcot would be sited. It was still pretty preliminary. Um, Marvin and I think most people had come to the conclusion the theme park was going to be located at the north end of the property um, because it was gonna be the driver or the puller, I guess you could call it, of people coming onto the property off of I-4 through an interchange to be established with the major East-West Road.
1: Right. I, I, how did they hit upon that layout? Because I know that layout goes back to really the, the very, well, we're talking about the very early days. Do you know who came up with that? Was that uh, Walter or Marvin or?
2: It's just a matter of, uh, I think, a collaboration. Marvin sort of was moving things around, but, The other factor that went into all of this was with 27,000 acres of land and a lot of the geology and the soil testing and the underlying activities needed to be, I mean, they were still working on researching that, trying to understand it. So, you know, big portions of the property were swampland. Right. Um, Environmentally, you didn't want to reclaim swamp land if you had dry drier land somewhere else. So, all of this had to be incorporated into the placement of these, you know, large activity centers.
1: You were fortunate that they had that ridge running down the center of property, and I guess that's how a lot of that was determined that that high level of land uh, that sort of ran down like a spine down the center of the property.
2: Yes. I mean, the the point I was making is that, for the most part, the water table was so high on the site that if you dug a hole three feet, you hit water. And so we had to deal with building foundations and so forth that recognized the fact that the water table was so high. It required, as in the case of the theme park, because we wanted to build that basement, but we wanted to get that basement up couldn't dig a basement down, and then because you'd have a tremendous dewatering problem. Sure. Um, so the solution, as you know, was to create the lagoon because we were looking to separate the theme park from the automobile parking. That was one of the concepts that came out early in this whole thing. And so, by digging the lagoon, we were able to reach the sand, and we carved out the sand and then put piled up the sand on the theme park side. So if you think about the basement under the theme park, it was basic, basically built as a building <laughs> about three feet above water. And then all the sand filled around it. <laughs> right. Right. And but it still required tremendous dewatering. We had a you know, a lot of dewatering pumps to carry water away. Because once you put the sand down, the water is going to climb even higher into it, it's going to be sucked up. So that became that issue. The the whole 9,000 acres of Reedy Creek Swamp on the western side of the property, of course, environmentally, we didn't want to destroy that. But again, I think I mentioned this before, is you have the water control system on this property, all governed by the... U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in the state of Florida, so you couldn't just dump rainwater or however the water arrived at your property. You couldn't just dump it onto your neighbors. So it had to be controlled. It had to have a controlled release. Well, what that ended up happening is the Reedy Creek Swamp became a somewhat of a reservoir to hold water so that it could be released downstream, in effect, off our property onto someone else's property to eventually end up in the Everglades following the the water reclamation procedures that the Corps of Engineers was was mandating at the time. Hmm. Um, And another factor of that was when we built the lagoon that was being fed by Bay Lake and then that water ran out into the Reedy Creek Swamp through a series of canals and waterways going past the you know the Asian Hotel and the uh, golf courses to the west and so forth, west and south. And all of that management required basically a I believe we wanted to maintain the water level. I forget the elevation. It was either 92 or 94 feet year-round, whether you had rain or not. And as sure, you know, in right. Florida, the rain comes came, rain comes in buckets in certain periods of the year, and then other parts of the year are dry. But we wanted, we needed to maintain a level, so the whole lock system. There was a whole series of of locks that were designed into these waterways to. Maintain the water level on the, in the lake and in the lagoon at the appropriate level, and then eventually controlled it the the outflow to go into the Reedy Creek Swamp. So it, these locks became either dams to hold water in or relief valves to let water out. So all of that took place, and all of the sort of carving out of the usable land versus the, what you might say was not necessarily non-usable, but uh, marginal land for development. And Bob Foster had hired a planning firm, Hart, and Stuby, who were out of San Francisco at the time, and they were brought in to kind of do a master plan layout for the community of Lake Buena Vista, which would be sort of a managed community by Disney, but with outside activities such as hotel sites, which could be developed and were developed because we could never, we as a company at the time, knew we could not provide enough hotel capacity close to the park and the contemporary and Polynesian. So that, that property gave us the ability to add an equivalent amount of hotel rooms with the properties that were
1: leased. Interesting. I'd always wondered what the impetus for that, for the Lake Buena Vista project was. And so it was a matter of uh, a, a way to get more rooms in without Disney having to front the investment, I assume.
2: Well that was that was one of the things that came about. I think originally I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but there was a whole derivation of with Walt Disney World with the entire Reedy Creek Improvement District issue, you needed to have a community where you had voters and so forth. So there was some early talk about residential development there. And you know, a commercial center, a more traditional development. And that piece was easily was sort of an appendage that could easily be carved out of the broader Walt Disney World development. The, the logic of the re- whole residential issue got changed at some point. It gave us space to where we knew we I mean there were no hotel rooms you if you got past sand lake and orlando florida there was a, not a hotel room until you pretty much got <laughs> to miami <laughs>
3: right right so,
2: so, so for the most part in the early days a lot of stuff got thrown together just before we opened but we we knew we had a had a demand for hotel rooms and we tried to provide as many as the company could finance at the time, but then we were able to double that room count by leasing out properties to the other more traditional travel lodge and holiday inn and and so forth, Hilton. Sure. So that gave us more capacity on site for visitors.
1: One of the interesting things about Lake Buena Vista is, In the early days, uh, I would say probably before opening or right at opening, they always talked about Lake Buena Vista as it was going to be a prototype of the prototype. It was going to be sort of a uh, dry run for Epcot, and it would have residents. But then that never really happened. At what point did they decide they didn't want to have residents, full-time residents?
2: That residents could create problems for the way you wanted to run Walt Disney World
1: sure right uh
2: if if you recall you recall there were a series of houses built a handful of houses literally where key company employees were i forget the arrangement they were either allowed to live in the house or rent the house or whatever for their families and they it, there was this little community and those people were the voters and they, they voted under the charter of the Rudy Creek Improvement District and whatever political sure. boundaries that we set up to accommodate that. But they were company employees and they voted what the company wanted to do. So but when
1: it we, made things easier. I think
2: what happened is they, they realized that you start bringing in other people and they're going to, they're liable to vote against things that you might want to do as a company on this site. So that was basically...
1: Well, your time, when you started off at WED, you overlapped uh, a little bit with uh, Walt's time before he passed away. And I was just wondering, what were those meetings with Walt like?
2: Well, there was one major meeting that I was participated in it was a review meeting. I mean, we, we had the key directors from Disneyland because they were all going to be part of the, obviously, the operation and were involved in input into the creative process. And of course, we had the key creative people, Irvine and Hench and Marty Sklar. and at the time. It was some pretty big meetings. Marvin would walk through the plans. Walt would make comments and one of the meetings that i I was involved in, and I wasn't involved in a lot of them with Walt, but uh, they might have been smaller meetings, but this was a fairly large meeting, and I don't even know what the purpose of the initiation for the major discussion was, but we mm-hmm. we ended up kicking around where the entrance to the project was going to be. We had not, I mean, there was a proposal to come off of 528, or excuse me, 535 north, but there was also a proposal to come off of I-4 a little bit to the east, almost near where the new entrance to Epcot, that entrance that was built to Epcot is. Sure.
3: So there
2: was a proposal to come in that way, and... It it had become very clear that Walt favored the north-south run off of 535. So, yeah, there was no question that Walt certainly favored the 535 entrance going north through the middle of the property. Uh, A few other people had recommended the one off of I-4, and they were in favor of that. Walt... For whatever reason didn't seem to want to tolerate too much discussion about that and so he basically pretty much made a decision and stopped all discussion and said no we're not going we're not coming off of i-4 we're going coming off of 535 and that was the end of that discussion but it was (laughs) kind of a from my viewpoint it was kind of a interesting discussion at the time because it was there seemed to be strong opinions both ways and walt once he made his mind up said that's it and let's move on
1: (laughs) how did things change or did they change after after he passed away uh with the planning for walt disney world
2: so this meeting that i'm talking about probably took place it was. It took place after I had been to Florida and been to the site, so that would have been um, in the spring, late spring of '66, when I went to the site for the first time.
1: Oh wow! So that was very early on that you were down there. Oh
2: yeah, we we Bob Matheson, Bob Riley, and myself went on a excursion market research kind of trip, if you want to call it. We wanted to see, you know, just what the tourist attractions were like there, what, what, so we went, we flew into Orlando and landed at McCoy, which was still basically a military base for all that, you know, at the time. And um, I, I always remember this We. We came off, it must have been early, late spring, early summer, I don't know. We came off the airplane on a roll-up boarding stairs, walked down to the ground and walked straight into a Quonset hut, a, literally a World War II Quonset hut
3: <laughs> that
2: was gripping humidity and moisture on your head as you walked through it. That building was effectively the ticket sales and ticketing area and check-in area. So we you had to walk right down through the middle of that to the other end to exit out at the street. And there was a sidewalk on the street and that's where all your bags were brought. It was all outdoors.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. So, you know, you're down there in spring of 66, you say, uh, how did you find, Florida, the Florida of 1966. What was that like?
2: Uh, very much like Anaheim of 1954 50, <laughs> or 53. <laughs> it was all orange groves and swamps. And I mean, I-4 was essentially nobody, no cars on it. We drove to the site and there was a, I think it was a Stuckies. Store featuring you know snacks and things like that, and I think there was a gas station on the corner of 528 and the I-4. There was an exit there, so I remember stopping there. We went onto to the site in a Jeep-type vehicle. Phil Smith met us. Phil Smith was the attorney there, but he was Mr. Hospitality for every all the visiting firemen and right. handle all the. Ar- all the arrangements for everybody coming down. But we we went on the site, went out to Bay Lake, saw the island out there, but pretty much palmetto and wet ground and, you know, dirt roads. Nothing had really been done. There were a few fishermen, excuse me, fishermen or, or hunters' cabins scattered about the site that we saw. But we were basically on what was the roadways that were carved through the through the palmetto and so forth. Sure. Uh, but it was basically just driving a truck through and flattening down things. Uh, <laughs> they weren't improved at all. So yeah, that was very early on. And then both Bob's and I left Orlando, drove all the way up to St. Augustine, then headed West to Tallahassee and, over to the Panhandle, down the East Coast, Tarpon Springs, all the way down the coast to uh, Santa Belle Island and that area, cut across the Everglades on the uh, highway that cut through East-West, ended up in Miami, drove back up to Orlando on the East Coast, Fort Lauderdale, looked at all that stuff and uh, took in all the... um, Tourist sites, uh, the alligator farms, the uh, cypress gardens, the <laughs> rattlesnake uh, farms—all the good stuff. We saw it all.
1: That is quite a trip. That is that is a uh, a real drive.
2: Yeah, it was. I always remember when I got home from that trip, I went to see uh, the movie uh, Easy Rider. So we're sitting in the movie. And you know, the last scene of that movie basically is where, I guess, Nicholson, right, gets shot, uh, some, some guys right. driving in a pickup truck with a rack of rifles on the back window and so forth. And so when we got to that part of the movie, and I didn't know what the movie was about, I get to the back part of the movie, I turned to my wife at the time and I said, I was there last week, I know where that place is. <laughs> <laughs> And I literally, literally was in that part of the country and tell a funny story. Bob Riley and, and Bob Matheson, are, of course, they're, they're older than me at the time. We used to stop every afternoon somewhere around 5 o'clock or so for a cocktail, right? No matter where we were on the road. Now, Florida... <laughs> Florida had a lot of funny rules at the time about where you could buy alcohol and sell alcohol. But anyway, we end up on this, coming down from the panhandle, we're on the west coast of Florida going through just pine forests. And there's this clearing. It's about 4.30, quarter to five in the afternoon. And there's this clearing. And it's essentially what looked like two wide, very large, Double wide trailers, side by each, and they're just stuck out here in this clearing. And I, there might have been a sign on it, but Bob recognized one of the Bobs recognized it as a, a place to get a drink. There's one car, yeah. There's one car there. And we pull in and we go into this place. The first thing I notice going up to the stairway that kind of gets you off the ground and into the door is there's a Black only and white only sign. Oh
3: no, Wow.
2: Two entrances, so we walk in and there is a long bar that goes from the about three quarters of the length of this trailer, and there's a door at the back end of it at the end of it, and that goes into the you know the black side, obviously. Uh, but there was a bunch of chairs, and there's a woman behind the bar, bartendering, and it's like three guys at the bar. Well, long story short, the three guys were, uh, one of them was married to the woman tending bar. Who, who knows? He could have been the owner of the place. Um, <laughs> they're all packing sidearms, and they're all oh, talking about how they're poaching in the national for- the Federal Forest across the street. (laughs) (laughs) Bob and I, but the two Bobs and I go into there, and we, you know, we order a drink, (laughs) and I'll never forget. We ordered a drink, had a uh, egg. They had hard-boiled eggs on the bar top. We each had an egg, had one drink, and. That worked out to be 65 cents (laughs) for each person. (laughs) That's a good deal. Yeah, it was a good deal. So it was like $1.95, right, for (laughs) for the three of us for for two drinks. The first thing Bob Riley says, I'd like, uh, he had a favorite gin, so he wanted to. you know, gin and tonic, and he says, give me a so, such and such. And the woman looks at him and says, can't you see all we got is Gilby's? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so the back bar of this bar is really interesting. I mean, I, I've been in a lot of bars in my life. <laughs> and uh, But the back bar of this bar was filled with pint and half pint bottles. Obviously, you know, not a lot of people bought <laughs> a cocktail by the glass at this bar. <laughs> <They> just,
1: <laughs> right. Okay, a, yeah.
2: They bought a pint or of half pint of booze right off the back bar. So when she pointed out, she says, Can't you see all we got is Gilby? So so that took care of that. I forget I probably, I don't know what I had. I, I can't remember what Matheson had. But all I know is they they finish their drinks and they look at me and they say, Frank, get the bill and they laugh. <laughs> and of course, knowing those guys, they'd leave me there. <laughs> right. So I I paid the bill two bucks, gave her two bucks and told her to keep the nickel <laughs> and got the hell out of there as fast as I could. <laughs> but it was it was very interesting experience.
1: Oh, I bet. I bet the, the culture clash, especially back then was really something else.
2: Yeah. And that's why I said to my, uh, my wife at the time, I said, I know exactly where that place is. I was there <laughs> last week. <laughs> I've
1: been there, had the egg, <laughs> had the whole deal. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's interesting that you got to see all that stuff as it was. Uh, you know, when you when you guys reported back, what did you have to say about what you had seen?
2: Well, we gave a full report. I mean, we, we basically said, you know, I'm, uh, there's no competition, so to speak. I mean, the biggest thing we saw as competition was, I think Miami had an aquarium. I think that was the most huh. up-to-date kind of tourist facility at the time. Everything was, you know, beaches. Silver Springs, you know, a water show with gals, swimmers, um, underwater. They had breathing apparatus piped into them. So, you know, it was all pretty, by Disney standards at the time, it was, you know, pretty low-key stuff. wasn't a lot right. to do. It was fairly a... And, and, and certainly... All the activity took, for the most part, took place on the coasts. Tampa was just one big, Tampa St. Pete was just one big retirement place. I mean, we went by hotels that were just, you know, full of retired people. Um, There was not a lot of excitement in Tampa or St. Pete at the time. There were nice neighborhoods, but it was before professional football, basketball, all that kind of.
1: Oh yeah, uh, long before that, sure. Well, I do have one question about uh, what you saw on property at that time uh, out on the island in Bay Lake. I know there had been some colorful local characters that had been living out there at some point. Uh, I just wondered if you saw what what that was like there on the island. If you saw any evidence of the people that had been there uh, living there.
2: Yeah, I don't. I didn't. I mean, I don't. Recall knowing about the people living there. It was characterized to us as basically a hunter's or fisher fisherman's cabin, and it was. It was. It was what you would find out in any remote place. Somebody banged together, you know, out of odd pieces of lumber, (laughs) built themselves (laughs) a cabin or a or a primitive, you know, housing piece. And there were a couple right. of those on the site. There were there were a number, you know, two or three of those on the site around. Just look at any old pictures of the South from the 1890s and the rural forests or something, and you can imagine what these places look like. It was the same thing.
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, so you come back, and uh, that fall. Walt does pass away? How long did it take for Wed to decide that they were going to go forward with the project after Walt passed?
2: Well, the, the, Wed didn't make that decision. That was Roy's decision.
1: Um, oh, of course.
2: Yeah, I mean Roy decided. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. I guess you read a lot about. The relationships between Walt and Roy and, you know, the, the, the standard story is that Roy was there to support his brother and his brother always had the crazy ideas and Roy always had to find the money to make them happen, right? I mean, that's the standard short version. <laughs> and uh, But I do think that there was, certainly there was a true appreciation among the brothers for each other and what they did, and when Walt passed away, I I, I wasn't privy to Roy's decision making, but there was no question it didn't take very long where Roy said we're going to move ahead with this project, and he and he became very active in making sure the project got built, and. Was active in many aspects of it that you would think he didn't need to be or shouldn't be or whatever, but he flew once. Once we started construction, there was a monthly meeting in in the field in Orlando, and Roy was on that in that meeting every month, oh, keeping wow. track of the progress. He was over at Wed looking at what. They were thinking of he was, uh, there's a photo that I was involved in of the meeting in the Florida conference room, which eventually I inherited as part of my office. Oh. And I, I had, I had Marvin's old office and I was the keeper of the Florida conference room. And and so all the meetings were held in there. And um, we had a meeting on, remember one time we had a meeting on Lake Buena Vista and there was a discussion about what should we call Lake Buena Vista. It all all revolved around the lake. And uh, at the end, Roy Roy was the guy who said, "Let's name it Lake Buena Vista."
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Variations of that were thrown out, but then Roy said, "No, Lake Buena Vista." So, you know, tied in with the studio being on Buena Vista Street, but and there was a lake there, so. That became like <laughs> Buena Vista. And Roy made that decision in a meeting I sat in. So, you know, and everybody agreed at that time.
1: So. That's, that's interesting. I, it's interesting that he was so involved. Uh, you always think of him, as, as you said, not being more being more the business side, not really being on the creative side. It's interesting that he really rolled up his sleeves and got in there.
2: But it just shows you that he was that active and knowing what was going on and, um, and wanted to participate. And he was, it was his decision to move ahead.
1: Right. It seems like he was really driven to make it happen. Yeah. Well, so, uh, planning for Disney world begins to start in earnest. Uh, did they, I, you know, I know you had worked on a lot of the, the preliminary work for the Epcot, the city. Did that all sort of get sidetracked as they focused on getting the, the theme park built?
2: Yes, because, again, the Epcot vision was Walt's, and other than Walt, what Walt expressed that he wanted to have happen, to be honest with you, I don't think anybody knew how to pull it off in a sense. I mean... Mm. And I only say that in retrospect because when we decided to move ahead with Epcot, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it really was and how to how to make it work because we knew it wasn't going to work with real people having tourists walk through their home looking at the latest appliances created by uh, you know American industry. <laughs> sure. Right. Put it that way. So again, the resources, the company, the first phase ended up being $500 million. I think I read something the other day that it may have been budgeted only for $400 million. So if that was the case, we I, I won't say we ran over the budget by $100 million. I I just think that what all the stuff we planned ended up costing $100 million more. You know, sure. it wasn't like we wasted $100 million. So company again when i started it, around that time at disney the, the company was grossing 100 million dollars a year in gross revenue so they're going to spend 500 million on a huge project so i think that that's really all we could focus on and certainly we had to build up an organization to do the work that was necessary. Uh, We went through the whole exercise of taking over the construction of the job a year before opening because the contractor Mm -hmm. wasn't performing. So it was like anybody who was anybody in that studio who knew how to do something was working on Walt Disney World. I mean, in the entire company, let's put it that way you know, not just the studio, the entire company.
1: Um, Absolutely.
2: I mean, you know, we ship key people out of Disneyland maintenance and facilities and they set up construction support facilities. Pla you know, people came out of the studio, staff shop, plaster work, technical people out of Mapo and everybody was moved down to Florida to make this thing happen. So There wasn't a lot of time to be thinking about or resources available for the Epcot piece of this whole thing. And we knew we had to generate the, the bigger deal to create the revenue, to expand the project to things like Epcot and the other aspects of it. So that was, that was a full blown effort.
1: Absolutely. It was all hands on deck. How long were you in Florida yourself?
2: Well, I was making uh, lots of trips to Florida. I I, I imagine I was down there at least two times a month. And then what happened was we got into, uh, as I said, the contractor wasn't performing. And my role at the time was managing this whole management control system. So I had a team of people both at Wed and I had to m- monitor all the schedules. And we were doing it from WED. We were supposedly getting information from the contractors on-site in Florida to put into our programs. But that wasn't going very well. So at some point, I took one of my number one guys and sent him to Florida, and stationed him there, and said, okay, here's your here's your cover story (laughs) you're there to (laughs) communicate on the installation because buildings needed to be done to a certain point and then we could bring in the installation crews to put in the show equipment and we needed certain conditions you know clean rooms and stuff like that so the cover story was you're down there to coordinate with the contractor on site the ability for people to come down and what was needed for the installation the real thing is you got to find out what the hell's really going on down there because <laughs> we, know, we know a lot of stuff isn't happening <laughs> so that worked out really well so there was a lot of reasons i mean my Group's input had a piece of that, but there were other reasons why the company felt the contractor couldn't perform. So we basically terminated them. one year before opening.
1: Oh, well, wonderful. Yes, no pressure.
2: Yeah, twelve months to get this project finished. <laughs> and so again, everybody who was doing something else became involved in the construction management I and. Mean, Joe Fowler still was running it in Florida, and, and he did his part, but the general contractor wasn't pulling his weight. So I'm sitting on my desk after lunch, and I get a phone call from Mike Bagnell, who was assistant treasurer at the time at the studio, and he says to me, the executive committee met today at lunch. and we have decided that we've taken over the construction of Walt Disney World ourselves and we've terminated J.B. Allen. And uh, you know what to do. (laughs) 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 That was the instruction So Do I? I? Okay, Mike, got it. Got it. Well, the contractor had this whole double-wide trailer full of people down there doing schedules and so forth. And so I hung up the phone, I called my assistant in and said, get me on the red eye to Florida tonight. Then my next call was to my number one guy in Orlando. And I said, I'm coming in on the red eye, meet me at the airport at 6.30 in the morning, pick me up. We're going straight to the site. Don't tell anybody I'm coming, <laughs> don't say anything <laughs> to anyone, just be there. <laughs> so, I go home, pack my bag, go to the airport, get on the plane, get to Florida at 6.30, Mike's there to meet me. We drive to the site, I walk into the trailer at whenever, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. Everybody's just arriving. I said, "Good morning." You know, I'm your new boss. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> so from then on, I had to find out what kind of people we had, and so forth. And it turned out they had good people. A lot of them had done this work at the space center. They were all had oh, okay. big big contractors there, so they were they knew what they had to do problem was that, again in the management of it, the uh, supervisor of that group that was working for the contractor, it didn't take him long, probably a day or two to figure out that he didn't have a job anymore, probably, although I never thought about that at the time. I was just trying to figure out what we had as resources. And so within a week, he filed for workless compensation. We never saw it. i like, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he got the idea eventually.
2: He got the idea,
1: yeah. So you basically took over all the subcontractors that were already there and just kind of took over the management role.
2: Scheduling and the management of the construction. And what we found out was that in reality a lot of stuff was not getting done on time and the schedules were behind and there were some major problems and of course I have did not come from a construction background so didn't have a lot of credibility. I was still young too. And these were, you know, tough contractors, subcontractors and so forth and so they didn't want to pay a lot of attention to me at first, but like everything else, you figure out a way to get their attention. (laughs) Right. That took about three months to where they finally realized that I knew what we were talking about and besides I was reporting this at our monthly meetings to Roy Disney, Don Tatum, Card Walker, and the other management that came down every month that we had problems here and problems there. and Usually the answer was, we'll take care of that, and the next month the problem still existed. Well, finally, there was one job in particular, and I went home for Christmas and told the scheduler on the project, here's what I need you to do, and I want to be ready when I come back for the January meeting, and sure enough, when I came back, I had all my facts, made all the points, and... uh, subcontractor got fired, superintendents got fired. <laughs> Project opened on time, Six, nine months later. <laughs> so, so to, to answer your question, like how long was I in Florida? I never left, effectively. From that day, I knew I was going to be there and I had to be there. So, um, I found an apartment because we had no had no organization yet at the time i went there the apartments and so forth most of the people were local anyway living there so mm-hmm. i had to find myself an apartment and finally after i find my apartment the disneyland guys came in and and they had you know their program and they were going to find a housing and everything and they said to me you know, we got these apartments. I said, sorry, I've already got my apartment. Thank you very much. I'm not (laughs) wasting any more time looking at apartments. (laughs) Oh, by the way, here's my rent bill. Could you just add it to your program? (laughs) uh, But I I found an apartment. I I probably came home to L.A., uh, explained to my wife that uh, I wasn't coming home for a while. Uh, My daughter had been born, she was about two years old or so at the time, so I said, uh, my wife was working at the time, so we had childcare, babysitter during the day, take care of my daughter, and that was all fine, and I said, um, you know, here's where I'm going to be for a while until we open this project, and that's where I lived. I lived there for about 18 months Um, because we opened the project and then after I finished everything on the theme park and we got through opening day, we still had the hotels to build. The Contemporary was not finished. I had to go over and get involved in the whole U.S. Steel because they were building the Poly and the Contemporary. Deal with all of that and then a lot of other bits of work. So, I guess it was I say 18 months. Maybe it wasn't that long. 15 months at least. 16 months. 15-16 months. I finally I think I finally came home after Christmas or at Christmas, just for Christmas in 1971.
1: Oh, okay. So, yeah, I'm sure it was a busy a busy time. I just wonder what life was like on that on that construction site. I'm I'm sure it was very hectic.
2: Very hectic. Every I drove a pickup truck. I had a pickup truck because that's what you needed to get around the site. And every pickup truck had a shovel in the back. Dig yourself out of the sand. <laughs> we got stuck oh boy. a lot. <laughs> and uh, it was a lot of site inspections, a lot of meetings with teams. People working on stuff, a lot of coordination work to be done. And then usually you went out in the field and checked on progress. I mean, I had a team of people doing that every day, but I would always do that a couple times a week and usually on the weekends when it was a little slower construction wise, but there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, and this particularly in the summer when it rained at four o'clock in Florida, like clockwork, you know.
3: Somewhere yes. between
2: two and the thunderstorms would start rolling in uh, the construction guys would you know they'd wait for that black cloud they knew as soon as it started raining they were going to leave <laughs> that, became, that became and then I found out a lot about uh, hunting season when there was hunting season guys wouldn't show up for two weeks I mean they said oh hunting season <laughs> we're not
1: working <laughs> oh my gosh it was pretty funny it's a whole different world. Did you? This is a very Orlando-specific question, but did you ever uh, visit Johnny's Corner?
2: Oh hell yes! I mean, Johnny's Corners was the only <laughs> <laughs> Johnny's Corners was unbelievable. That was the that was their one. Right after construction started, I think that opened up. the The original thing, the original one, was in a a little shed. And, and he started selling he started out by just selling cold beer. He had a refrigerator, cold beer, and that place after at four thirty in the afternoon was lined up with construction guys coming off the site right' Because <laughs> uh, that was the main street off of the site, his main access, and off of five twenty eight and then uh, the guy became so wealthy that he was able to buy the corner across the way and built himself a brand new facility but for <laughs> Three or three years or so, they were pumping all kinds of stuff out of that little shed.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Johnny's yeah,
2: a, Johnny's Corners is a great a great place.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah, it's just I would imagine uh, there was a big market to serve people since there was nothing else around for miles and miles that uh, an entrepreneur could make a good living.
2: Yeah, and it was you know. Before the days of uh, these uh, food trucks that go around all the time now. (laughs) So, you know, everybody brought their own lunch to work because there's nothing, nothing servicing that. I think when we built the admin building, we put a little cafeteria function there, but it was not sufficient. But these guys, you know, they had a long drive. They had another... Once, once they left Johnny's corners, they had 12 miles or 15 miles or 20 miles to get home. So they, <laughs> you know, they loaded up on their beers, had their beers and they were great.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Well, so, uh, you know, you get the park open, it's, uh, end of 1971, but then Roy passes away. Was there any noticeable change in how things worked at the company after Roy died?
2: Not that you would notice per se. I think the transitions were all good. Don and Card became responsible, and I'm sure they had their coordination discussions of how they would operate, but they seemed to get along and did that fine. And, um, you know, Card worried more about the operations of all the facilities and the filmmaking and so forth, and Don was more of the administrator guy. Dealing with finance and the legal aspects and so forth, so it was really, that I can recall, not a difficult time. There was a slowdown, though. You know, where do we go next? I mean, we had uh, we had this project that had opened, but it had not proven itself yet. I mean, it had. A, I think Roy passed away four months after we opened, so that was early in 72 and we hadn't completed a first year we hadn't gotten to our summer period of the big attendance so the jury was still out on the project it had a slow start which was expected but even when it was expected people were worrying that it was a slow start (laughs) but we Purposely, right. We purposely scheduled the opening for the slow time. And it wasn't really until Thanksgiving that we had a huge impact of people into the park and that began to pick up during the winter travel season. But we still hadn't gone through summer and we didn't know what the attendance was going to be and all of that. And it turned out we exceeded those projections so i think there was a little slowdown. people trying to get their feet trying to understand what the project needed and it needed a lot and so there was a lot of a lot of analysis of how we utilize the property what we did with the property don was always trying to get more use out of the property than others so he mm. he was the one who sort of pushed, well, we've got all this land, but we've only used 4,000 acres of it, 4,500 acres. What are we going to do with the rest? And so there was all that to go on. Nobody was ready to take on Epcot, to be honest with you, because Card, who was geared to push that, you know, didn't know how to go about it or, had given a lot of thought to how to go about it, and it was the timing was not ready. I remember I when I one of the first things I did when I came back from Florida was to send a memo out to Jim Stewart and Carter and a few other people, and my memo basically said, you know, we've gotten off to a good start here because now we're through the we're into the. You know, this was done probably January, February, probably January of 72. I wrote this memo because it was soon after I got back. And we so we had, we had the Christmas season and the good attendance and so forth. And I said, you know, now's the time to be thinking about how we're going to start working on Epcot. And, you know, that sort of landed like a thud, you know. I mean, nobody, oh, really? nobody responded to that. They weren't ready for it. And um, so we, we had plenty of work to do because there was, like I say, a lot of things that needed to be added. We had a lot of issues with the hotels in the sense that they were getting overloaded. We were closing the park, particularly in the winter. We closed the park at 6 o'clock. All these people are out, again, in the middle of nowhere before they even wanted to go to their car, to drive home to wherever they were driving to. Even if they had to drive to Orlando to a hotel or or Tampa, or wherever they were going, they wanted to eat. So they overloaded all the restaurants in our hotels, particularly the contemporary because the <laughs> to, to get off, to get to their car, they had to ride the monorail right through the lobby and they could see there were restaurants. <laughs> well, let's stop here and and uh, get dinner. So we had huge overload up to the food facilities and in the contemporary hotel to the point where the hotel guests were upset because they couldn't get to eat in their own hotel.
1: Right. Sure. You know, I'm surprised with as overloaded as the hotels were as busy as the hotels were that they cut back their roster. You know, there were, there were three entire hotels that they had announced, but never built. And i wonder why that was why they were content to leave that sort of overflow market to other local hotel chains
2: again it was probably more of a financial capability to do that you know if we go back to the original budget of if it was 400 million i'm not sure that's the right number but now we spent 500 million you know did we have another $60 Sixty million dollars or so to build three more hotels. I don't know. Probably not. Oh, That's okay. Not, you that know, makes sense.
1: Well, also in the 1970s came the uh, the fuel crises, the oil crises. Did that affect planning at all?
2: <laughs> well, yes, it did. <laughs> That's a funny story. You bring that up because uh, I always subscribed to Barron's magazine ever since I was in college, and one day, Barron's Magazine lands on my desk on Monday morning, and, and the headline um, on the cover is something related to oil crisis, oil shortage, oil something. And there was a huge article in there by an energy analyst analyst from Wall Street who was basically, if you read the article, said that there was going to be supply of oil for various reasons, was going to shrink and that it could mean gas rationing and other problems in the oil industry, prices, increases, et cetera. So I look at that article and I say to myself, well, this is pretty interesting. (laughs) We just just opened up a facility in Orlando, Florida that requires... (laughs) Uh, that 80% of the people coming there come by car. Most of them from New York, Massachusetts, the Midwest, et cetera. Sure. I say I had two guys working for me at the time on my team. I did not hire these people. Mel Melton hired them, but he didn't know what to do with them or how to use them. So he turned them over to me. (laughs) They were both couple of bright finance guys out of UCLA. Names were Pat Scanlon and Steve Ezzies. Okay. And uh, so I turn to Steve Ezzies and I say, Steve, read this article. And it was some mention in there that there was going to be rationing, maybe uh, I forget, some amount of gasoline per month, right? And so I said, Steve, Read this thing. Particularly note about this rationing thing, and tell me whether or not a tourist can get from New York City or Boston, Massachusetts, to Orlando and back home on his gas rationing <laughs> number. So he puts the pretty uh, puts together a pretty good analysis of this problem. Now that now that you got to understand, this report came out. This issue in Barron's, I think, was like in the spring of seventy seventy three 73 or 74. I think it might be 73. So I get Steve's report. We talk about it. He makes some changes. I circulate it out to the head shed, just like I normally did everything. <laughs> Same distribution list. Well, nobody said anything. Nobody... Uh, Nobody uh, commented. Like It was like silence, you know? I'd expect somebody to say, well, let's come up with a plan in case this happens. That was the whole purpose. I sent this out. Right. And so sure enough, by September, October, I think we were in the middle of a gas problem. And uh, attendance was being impacted. So... I found out later that, based upon comments that I got, was that people read that, but it's like humans all, always do. They ignore They ignore the inevitable sometimes.
3: Right? <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> and all that did was get me in the doghouse with Card Walker particularly, unfortunately. Really? Uh, because, yeah, because I think... I, I don't really know answer but i i ended up being in the doghouse because i don't think he liked the article and i think he may have took it too personally because he was the ceo of the company no mercy. <laughs> and uh and he was getting impacted and it was something he was going to have to deal with i don't know what the deal was but well when that happened and, and i asked Bagnall at one point you know i sent this memo out five months ago and nobody seemed to be concerned. Well, what could we have done anyway? It was the comeback. Mm. Well, I didn't necessarily have an answer for that, but I would have thought somebody would have tried to mitigate it in some
1: way. Yeah, absolutely.
2: It turned out that it did have an impact. Again, there was no planning, To mitigate it, there was the usual reaction of laying off people and tightening your belts until it was able to blow away.
1: Right. And it seems things bounced back after. Well, soon after, you wound up, for a time, uh, you were working on Epcot and Tokyo. Is that correct?
2: That is correct, yes. Uh,
1: How long were you involved in Epcot planning for uh, Epcot Center?
2: From the beginning, so we started that. Marty started to try to pull that together. Starting in 73, 74 probably, the beginning of 74, we started to try to pull what Epcot would be together. And so that's when I became involved in that. And I stayed on that until I took over the Tokyo Disneyland project 100% because I volunteered to do that because I was acting as project manager on both projects, coordinating all the all the planning and, and design work and so forth for both projects. And they were getting to a point where uh, they were uh, just getting too much work to be done by one person. And <laughs> I, I would imagine. finally came to the solution that, you know, we had to split these things up. Um, I had to take one, and we needed to find somebody else to take the other one. And uh, so I went into Carl Bongiorno and basically said to him, "You know, I'm not sleeping at nights. I mean, I'm working on two projects, and it's keeping me awake at night." <laughs> so we got to sure. find somebody to, we we gotta we gotta make a decision on bringing putting someone else in charge and so of one of these projects. And Carl said to me, Well, which one do you want? And that's when I, you know, didn't I didn't hesitate at all. I said, I'll take the Tokyo project.
1: Oh, what was that?
2: Well the reason I did that was because I could see that Epcot, big as it was and unique as it was, was in many ways for me a repeat of what I had been through with the creation of Walt Disney World and the construction and so forth. So I saw that to be a repeat and more of the same old stuff. I also recognized that everybody and their brother wanted to be on the Epcot project because that was <laughs> the hot new thing. And I realized that not a lot of people we're interested in Tokyo, but I was interested in Japan only because I felt there were going to be a lot of unique challenges in that project, and from a personal standpoint, it would be more challenging to me to, to run that project. And so exactly, that's the whole reason why I said I will take, you know, I'd, I'd want to do the Tokyo project. So that's when we quickly made a decision. And, you know, we brought in um, the Tishman organization, and uh, they took over the sort of the Epcot project.
1: Oh, okay. Well, how did Disney decided to participate in Tokyo Disneyland?
2: Just like after Disneyland, once Walt Disney World became a success, everybody and their brother wanted a Disney World project in their backyard, right? So lots of people came out of the woodwork and in particular the Japanese had at some point Chairman Kawasaki, who was chairman of the Keisei Electric Railway, apparently had approached Disney sometime earlier about building a Disneyland-type park in Japan along his railroad line, certainly. And at that time, Disney was not interested in any of that stuff, so that sort of went away. But then again, right after Walt Disney World opened, he came back again through Mitsui Trading Company, which had an office in L.A., But Mitsui Busan, as we called it in Japan, made another introduction and they approached disney again now the interesting thing about that was that in the end of 1972 i got a call from i think it was mike bagnell again and he said i don't know if it was mike or not it might have been mel melton can't remember someone from the studio at the time said we want you to do a study because Walt Disney World has been such a success, we want to think about doing this internationally. Now they may have already had inquiries, enough inquiries to stimulate them to ask that question, but we want to know where we should do this project next, in Europe or in Japan. And I was given those two specifics.
1: Interesting.
2: So I said, okay, so I go out and we do. We get. We got started on some what I call library research. That was the other thing. You know, don't book any. Don't book any tickets to All these places. You know, start out by doing library research as we call this. <laughs> right. So. Uh, so we got ERA to help us, and they did sort of a marketing analysis of Europe and Japan, and then we did our own in house, and then effectively, I took all this information, and we worked on this for about four or five months, to study both these areas. So in Europe, we had a number of candidates different countries, and they were laid out on the basic demographic information and market information that ERA provided. And then we also had Japan, and we had a couple different potential locations in Japan. So I compiled all this information, plus my own reading and my, our own, and I had a, a team of guys looking at stuff as well, and I wrote an executive summary at the end of this and basically said, if we're going to do a project internationally, both Europe and Japan could support the project, but. Japan offered the highest potential of success.
3: Interesting. And that was my
2: conclusion of uh, an executive summary. I always remember those words very carefully. <laughs> and uh, and they're still looking for that original memo. We haven't been able to track it down yet.
1: Oh really? <laughs> you were right though.
2: But anyway, so I send that over and it was I say it was this was done at the end of 72 and it sort of went over to the studio to whoever requested it and copied, you know, the usual characters were copied, didn't hear anything, right? Nothing happened. It was like okay, no feedback to me, certainly. But somebody obviously must have read this. <laughs> so along shows shows up uh, the Japanese and sorta of the middle summer of seventy four I heard that a Japanese group had come to the studio to pitch Disney on building a theme park there. And I wasn't called to the meeting or anything, but Bob Hicks was involved, I believe, on it. He was sort of the point man for the studio. Because all these inquiries would go to the studio, not necessarily to WED anyway. And then the next thing I hear is that Orlando Frani was running wet at the time and Orlando? I reported to Orlando oh, yeah. the next thing I hear is that a trip is being organized to Tokyo and I believe Orlando, Dick Nunes John Hench Card Walker well I don't know about Card Don Tatum, car, yeah I think dark, Card Walker Don Tatum certainly, and there may be one or two other people, but they all went to Japan and I don't know who coordinated that. I guess it was coordinated through Mitsui Trading or through other contacts that they had and one of the companies, so they met with two companies. They met with uh, the Oriental Land Company but really Keisei Railway Mm -hmm, who had the site in Urayasu and then they met with Uh, Mitsubishi, who had a lot of land on the slopes of uh, Mount Fuji, more of a resort area, and uh, basically came back from that trip with the idea that there were at least one company, because before they left, after that trip, the Mitsubishi people dropped out and we often thought that this was a government decision
1: uh, yes
2: the Oriental Land Company which was at that point owned by Mitsui Real Estate and Keisei Railway they were partners and so Edo and Kawasaki were classmates in school so that's the connection there <laughs> and uh, they were developing all this land for housing. So they basically said, we'd like you to come to this project. There was never any discussion about Europe. So this opportunity came across and I wasn't invited on the trip because I was still in my doghouse days with Card Walker, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> At that point. And, uh, yeah, it lasted for about a year, and so I wasn't included, but when I got back from Christmas holidays, Orlando calls me, and he says, okay, here's the deal. He says, here's what happened on the trip. Here's the questions everybody has. He said, what do you think we should do? <laughs> I said, well... <laughs> I said, this all sounds good. I said, why don't we, I said, first of all, we know nothing about the location. We know nothing about the partner. We do know Japan is based upon our previous work as a target. So I said, why don't we do a six month feasibility study? Well, I don't know if I said six months, but why don't we do a f- feasibility study Uh, jointly with the partner will figure out whether the site is the right place and we will learn something about the partner (laughs) because we'll have to work together yeah and so he says okay and I guess he was asked that by somebody at the studio so a few days later I get a call from Orlando okay get started, (laughs) that was basically how Tokyo Disneyland got started. And it was uh, Don Tatum probably was a big leader in this because, again, he's trying to figure out how to generate additional growth and income for the company off the stuff that we've spent a lot of time investing in. And we always looked at projects that way. I mean, that was his philosophy. We spent all this time investing in Disneyland and in Walt Disney World, creating all this stuff. How do we build on that investment?
3: Sure, sure.
2: How do we go to the next level? And I think they saw Japan as somebody who might be able to finance the project pay them a royalty and fees and I don't know whether they thought they wanted to be an owner of that project or not at the beginning at the end card was not in favor of investing in the project so Mm. that was very tricky to deal with in the negotiations It's very hard but He prevailed at the end, um, and we got the project at the end. So it worked out, although we, again, in retrospect, we missed out on a fairly big chunk of equity.
1: Oh, absolutely. Do you have any idea why he felt that way, Why why he was inclined in that direction?
2: His reasoning was... We're building Epcot, and we need every cent uh. Uh, that we have like, can, can raise for Epcot. I think I think it goes back to the fact that Cardfelt and his roadmap was the unfinished projects of Walt, right? And Roy. Right. So the unfinished projects of Walt and Roy were Mineral King, the ski resort and Epcot. And he felt obligated that that's what he needed to do during his period of management is to try to find a way to bring those projects to realization.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: So that's what, that's the way I would read that.
1: Well, you know, you had said that you picked Tokyo because you wanted a different experience from your Walt Disney World experience, so how did the Tokyo process uh, of construction and development? How did that differ from Walt Disney World?
2: The Japanese were excellent con- contract construction managers. Mm-hmm. They worked really hard. The contractors on their own. There were four four major contractors that built the park. They basically knew that we had picked an opening date of, originally it was March 15th, that's what I had proposed because I wanted to give enough time to train the people because that was a little uncertain. It got moved to April 15th and after some discussion, but it became April 15th was the opening day. We were used to building in the United States and Walt Disney World certainly, construction going on right up until opening small things not being finished, but most Mm, of the major things done. Japanese contractors on their own decided to finish their work by the end of the year, December 31st, 1982. And it's the first time that literally you had a completed park to train and test and run your People through for literally three months before we actually had to run people through it. It's actually two and a half months because
3: March,
2: March 15th, I think March 15th, March 17th was the first time we invited contractors and their families to the park to, you know, we did a soft opening thing between March 17th and the, the official opening day of April 15th. Part of that right. decision was made on the basis of the Japanese fiscal year. The Japanese fiscal year ends March 31st, so like three months off of our fiscal year normal.
3: Right, so right. everything
2: everything starts April 1st brand new, and I think from a standpoint of either taxation or other issues regarding Japanese finances based on a fiscal year thing. um, April, April was a more appropriate time to open.
1: Sure. Were there any specific cultural considerations when WED was trying to figure out the sort of the menu for what was going to be there in Tokyo attraction wise and the shows and everything were, Were there specific cultural considerations that had to take place in that planning?
2: The biggest cultural concerns we had was language. So signage, the major signage was always in English, but minor signage had English and Japanese. I mean, things like restrooms and (laughs) <laughs> exits and entrances and so forth. So that was all done. The The hard part was language and dialogues. So there was a mix of English and Japanese sometimes. Sometimes it was all Japanese. Songs were difficult to translate into from English to Japanese. That was more difficult because you're trying to match notes to lengths of words and sure. sometimes rhyming and so forth. So, that, so, but those were the major cultural issues there. The choice of attractions, well, it was another major issue, but I'll deal with that in a second, but the choice of attractions and so forth, we knew from guest surveys of disneyland and walt disney world that japanese appreciated the same attractions that we appreciated in pretty much the same order of popularity so we also knew that the japanese really wanted a true disney experience there was a fake disneyland in japan that was created by someone going through Disneyland and photographing everything they could <laughs> photograph and creating it so, but they never had the inside stuff they just had the outside stuff so there is a famous park in, in Japan that's I think it's called Dreamland that was
1: uh, yes yes
2: that's pretty much a ripoff of uh, of Disneyland. You have to understand too. Japan was in when we started this project in the early 70s, mid 70s. Was still working its way out of the war issues, and they were, you know, they were ahead of the curve in terms of a developing country, but they were still a a developing country, and the big growth was yet to come in japan so like all developing countries there's always somebody who's going to rip off something whether it's uh chewing gum or (laughs) or or bicycles or cars or whatever and they're going to try to make it and so the japanese are very brand conscious uh high quality for the most part demand good quality demand good service But they've had to put up with so much fake stuff during their 60s and 70s, early 70s, that they wanted the real thing. So the real thing was basically the same thing we had built for Walt Disney World, in a sense, for the most part. The only exception we made to that was um, we, we learned that to get the school group business, you you had to be approved by the, the Ministry of Education. And school group business in these states was, was a big business. And so to be sure that we could get the Ministry of Education, we needed to do, we felt we needed to do a cultural show that reflected something about Japan. Sure. And its history. So that created the meet the world attraction. We, we spent a lot of time on it because we wanted to tell the story of Japan history in a, in a manner that represented the Japanese sort of view of this. So we had Japanese writers and art directors and Put them together with our own people to create that story, and so, oh, and, okay, and, you know, and and the untouchable parts of it, like World War II, became violent storms and on the ocean. Um, yes, to get through the controversial part of it. But anyway, that that show was specifically designed for Tokyo Disney. I mean, we started this.
1: One of the other things you all wound up doing is that no other Disney park does is enclosing the Main Street area. And I've seen a lot of the early art for that was a real modern approach, uh, almost an international street. That changed to a more traditional uh, Main Street, I suppose.
2: How that came about is, for good or bad, I had a lot of input into it. <laughs> so Marty doesn't like the cover over World Bazaar. If, if you read it, oh really? If you read one of his books, he says that's a big mistake. And Marty is a good friend, so we would have a, a discussion over it. He, he, he didn't like it from a vision of the castle kind of view. That's where his big hang-up is. But the background on all of that was when we first started conceptual work, we knew there wasn't going to be a train that ran around the park.
1: Mm, Right.
2: And part of that logic was at the time when we built Walt Disney World, the train ran around the park at Walt Disney World and there was nothing to see except the swamp on the outside. There was no... (laughs) Sure. it, It was so much vacant space and very little to see into the park that it was a nice train ride, but it wasn't really a lot of show value, right? So we did not want to make the same mistake, if you want to call it that. I mean, I don't even know if it was a mistake. We just didn't want, we wanted to not have that same low show experience in Tokyo. So we decided not to run the train around the park, which eliminates the station. So the original thinking was the Japanese, again, were so big on shopping. This is a phenomenon. The Japanese are used to uh, what we call omiyagi, bringing gifts to people. So there was always a gift trading society. And we also felt that Main Street, as conceived at Disneyland or Walt Disney World, a Victorian American scenario, didn't have much meaning in Japan. So we came up with this idea of the International Bazaar, the World Bazaar, I keep calling it International, okay. which was basically to be an international. Um, and Carlos Denise, uh, who was an illustrator of contemporary modern illustrator, illustrating lots of architectural projects, we brought him in to illustrate the World Bazaar as an international center. That's why it tends to be fairly contemporary. I guess you would call it mid-century American shopping mall, right?
3: Sure, right.
2: Um, So that's basically what we, we started out with. Well, the more we played with that, the more we didn't sort of care for it that much. And the Japanese seemed to like the Victorian architecture. So we went back to the Main Street facade component, but we also designed more retail space. You know, the Main Street became almost double-sided in Tokyo Disneyland. True. We knew. Right. We and this is a lot of this is driven by our consumer product experience with Disney merchandise and a lot of input from Matsuo Yokoyama and his group in Japan. So we we increased the footprint of her retail, but then we were concerned about the weather. And the weather in Japan is cold and rainy at times. It's like building in New York City. Hmm. And I had seen a, an abundant use of arcaded covered streets, shopping streets in Tokyo and in Japan. I'd seen them in London, um, in Europe. And so we came up with the idea to cover Main Street. And one of the reasons to do that was in inclement weather it would at least give people some refuge. They're not walking totally out in the rain all the time. They could be in refuge on Main Street and still do some shopping, still go to a restaurant, eat food, all that kind of stuff and be somewhat protected. Also, I calculated that Main Street would hold 10,000 people on a special party, so if you had a party in Tokyo in January when the weather's quite cold, they could all be undercover on Main Street if you wanted to do a special event. Sure. That became the basically the reasoning why it has a arcade and why <laughs> it's a big retail operation. <laughs>
1: Right, exactly, and it still is absolutely. Well, it wasn't long after Tokyo, uh not long after all this happened that uh, there was a big shakeup. Eisner and Wells came in. How did things change when there was that big management change?
2: Well, that was uh, that's a whole another story. Things changed quite a bit. You know, Ron Miller was working for Ron, and Ray Watson had joined the company. When I was in Tokyo, Card had turned a CEO job over to uh, Ron Miller and stayed as chairman. And then Ray Watson came in when, when Card retired. And so it was new management. And I first met Ray in Tokyo when he came to Tokyo. And, but I was told by, by Miller that I was going to be brought back to the studio after Tokyo opened when I was ready to come home. And he had a job for me at the studio, which was going to be VP of corporate planning. And we never had the function of, of that role. I used to do it on a sort of ad hoc basis because of the work it WED involved most of all of major projects we were working on, other than film and television. So I was told I was going to have that role and got to meet Ray at the time. So... When I left Tokyo after about, I know it was June of '83. After it had been open for a couple of months, I then took a month's vacation. <laughs> 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 hadn't had one in a long time, and went to Europe with my wife and kicked around Europe for about three weeks. My wife is from England, uh, born in Southampton, and oh. so she wanted us to go back and. To Europe, and I had never uh, actually been to Europe prior to that, So, but she wanted to do it her way, which was take a 17-day European tour via American Express, so that meant riding <laughs> on tour buses, but I was told, because I came back and checked in with the studio before I left on vacation, got an office organized, and I said, They told me, okay, one of your jobs besides corporate planning is you got to figure out where in Europe we're going to do a park because Tokyo's turned out to be pretty successful. So you got to figure, you're going to be figuring out that too.
1: Wow. So they went right into that.
2: Yeah. And fortunately, like I said, my wife takes credit for me learning about Europe in a very (laughs) unusual way and a lot of experience, which I ended up. Helping me with the whole European analysis and the reason I located it. we, you know, we picked the Paris as the location, but a lot of that came from that learning experience on that that trip. Wow. And
3: so that was anyway,
2: that was pretty much how the Disneyland Paris project got started. But in that whole process. I began working with, with Ray and, and and Ron, and we got into all the other issues of Disney at the time, which was how to stay competitive in the movie business when we were still making G-rated movies.
3: Mm-hmm. Everybody was
2: making X-rated movies, so to speak. Um, so we, we had to deal with that the whole second label thing, the image of the company, how we expanded the company because 80% of our revenues were coming from the theme park. Um, So there was the whole startup of cable television with the Disney Channel. So that was a natural outgrowth of the television programming sector, and we did our own thing. So Jim Jamero, who was running that, we got involved in that. Anyway, we started to try to, under Ron's direction, try to organize the company to be a more dynamic, more diverse entertainment company. And so that was the first start of all of that.
1: I find it interesting. You say that because I've always thought Ron Miller gets a bad rap because he only really had a short time in control. And in that time, he instituted a lot of things that, you know, Eisner would later get a lot of credit for, but it was Ron Miller that seems that really kicked off a lot of these things, a lot of these initiatives. Does that sound right to you?
2: Yeah, you're very correct in that. And I I particularly have very unhappy memories of how things are represented, which are totally the wrong people are credited for it, or the motivation is incorrect. <laughs> and so, right, uh, absolutely. And, and I'll tell you a story about Ron Miller, and the reason I really had respect for him was we, we had a big function in Walt Disney World. It might have been related to Epcot, but it was a management function where we all the key a lot of key players were down there. And it was the time I was in the doghouse with Card Walker. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to this uh we went to this re had a reception before dinner at the contem- I remember the contemporary hotel. And so I was there and sort of a little awkward because I was not, I wasn't engaging in the conversation as much because I knew that there were some concerns, you know, about my performance or whatever. Not that I was having problems with my performance, but some people were reading it <laughs> differently. And Ron Miller comes up to me and he says, sit down. We sat together for... A good 30 minutes, and he said to me, I just want you to know that a lot of the ideas that you promoted, we should have really thought more about. And he said, for example, as an alternative, you wanted to buy Park City instead of trying to do our own ski resort. He said, and we should have bought Park City. Oh, wow. And Interesting. Th- then he made a couple of other references to other things that he knew I was either criticized for or whatever. And then he said, so he said, don't worry about it. He says, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. And I always had such a great respect for that because then, you know, that was it. It was over and done with in less than 30 minutes. Right. And, yeah. and I always appreciated the fact that he took the time, he knew I was getting beat up, but he took the time to tell me not to worry about it, and that he, you know, recognized that I had some value. You know, at the time, I was questioning whether I had any value.
3: But Sure, yeah, so that's I always, always good to hear, absolutely.
2: And, and we worked r- real well, so, you know, he had his executive committee, and, you know, there were people that ran at all the divisions, and I was the guy trying to coordinate the activities of all of those divisions into a corporate plan. And we did the first one for the company. I did the first one as a result of all that coordination. And we started working together as a, a real team of people all trying to make the company that much better.
1: I find it interesting that he was aware of the problems they were facing at the studio with the, you know, the quality of movies they were putting out. And I, I just always, I'm fascinated with the trajectory of the company when he left to think about where things might have gone, because he was making a concerted effort.
2: Well, he was, and Ray was supporting that effort. I certainly was. But he, he had reorganized to to bring a a new level. And, and Ron gets a bad rap, and people you know always say, well, he's he's Walt's son-in-law, and he's just an ex-football player, but. Ron was much more savvy than that. And he learned a lot because Walt gave him chances to learn a lot. Um, and so I think he, he really knew where the company needed to go. And uh, he was trying to make an attempt to make it happen. And I always, one of the things that gripes me about the, The first corporate plan, we did all these projections. We did a five-year projection of where we were going and why we were going in that direction and what we needed to do to get there. It was the whole roadmap. And we had financial targets in there. And when Frank Wells and Michael Eisner were brought in, their bonuses were based on those financial guidelines that were established in that first plan. Really? So there was already a blueprint and all they had to do was just follow that plan and their bonuses were tied to that. And it it was basically really frustrating because it all did happen and none of it was, at least in the early years, none of it was really their doing.
1: (laughs) That's remarkable. That Well, that's what I've, you know, since I've started learning more about it, because I grew up in that era when all the news coverage was the miracle turnaround at Disney and this and that. And, you know, Eisner's the king of the world for this. And later on, I learned, well, you know, Touchstone, Disney Channel, the overseas parks, that all started before. And, you know, I know he was trying to work with George Lucas for the theme parks. Ron was. Uh, you know, all that stuff started before, and it really opens your eyes that you know these these things started out with someone who gets very little credit for that.
2: We collaborated with 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 uh, George Lucas long before. I mean, Captain EO out of at Tomorrowland was was a result of a meeting we had with George Lucas, Ron, and four or five other executives. He invited uh, George Lucas. To his vineyard in up in Yountville, to his home and and vineyard there, and we spent the whole day with George Lucas talking about collaboration, and that ended up being tied to eventually that he did the Captain EO thing, but I think eventually it would have resulted in a in the purchase of of George's company or some kind of merger, long before. Uh, Iger did it.
1: Wow, that's fascinating.
2: And we we had those discussions, and um, yeah, I was part of that whole deal. And so Ron was, I mean, the whole Touchstone thing was was a critical thing. We he got criticized all over. Right? People would he knew that just making G rated movies wasn't going to cut it. Right. Uh, we had to open up. The trouble is, if you put Disney on it, it was automatically rated, G-rated. We, we had an outfit in San Francisco do a, a survey for the company, and they came back and said, if it's got Disney on the movie, every parent in the world is not worried about sending their kids to see it. If the kids tell them we're going to go see this Disney movie, they just let them go. So right. the problem was, if you got out of the G rated business, you were going to jeopardize that relationship with a huge group of people. And so the solution is you got to come up with another label. And the other label was Touchstone and just trying to get that whole thing through the exercise. I mean, Ron had letters from old time employees, you're going into the you know, sex-rated movies, you're going into this, you know. (laughs) There's a lot of creep. I mean, he he told me one time, he says, every time I walk out to my car in the parking lot, I end up having somebody stop me and says, you're ruining the company. (laughs) You're ruining Walt's company.
1: Oh, wow. And for all that, he doesn't even get the credit for it.
2: Yeah. And then, of course, what happened? We make the first picture, and... It's a fantastic success. Right. So, make a long story short, after that, I mean, once Ron was gone, then, you know, everything was in turmoil. Uh, Everybody who felt they knew how to really run the company was talking to, trying to get their points made with with uh, wells and uh, and Michael, so there you go. It was uh, it it was really a bad time there for a couple of years.
1: right. Well, and not long after you you decided to leave, correct?
2: Well, I didn't decide to leave. I, I was basically asked to leave. i mean, i'm I'm looking at a right here in my office, there's a statue of of Will Rogers from the American Adventure. Sculpted by Blaine Gibson. Yes. It's got a plaque on it. It's one of 17, not number one, it's 14 of 17 or something like that. This two foot sculpture of Will Rogers. And it was given to the 17 executives that worked for Ron Miller. And of those 17 executives, only three. Remained with the company after three years. Oh, wow! <laughs> so, uh, but you know, it's like new management comes in, and therefore old management is old management. So the only the only survivors were Dick Nunes, who worked really hard at, and he was a key guy because he had he's running all the parks, so they had to rely on him, and he worked really hard till he. Decided he could take over the Disneyland Paris project, and they put up with him for a little while. And realized that he wasn't going to be able to negotiate it or make the deal, or was capable of doing that. So he Uh. pushed aside. Uh, But the second person who who was retained was Doris Smith. Who was the secretary of the company? So she was non-threatening <laughs> in a non-threatening role, and uh, and I forget who the third person was who survived for uh, a while longer, much longer. But anyway, that was it. So I've I worked for for Frank and uh, and Eisner for a while, but uh, when they brought in um, Gary Wilson from Marriott. And he took over the whole financial thing. He took over the whole corporate planning function. So my only claim to fame is that one of the jobs I was given by Eisner was to replace the G1 with a jet aircraft. So I ended up taking (laughs) over the, I, I took over the aviation department, uh, at Disney which by then had sort of sunk into sort of a morass. So I ended up buying, at the time, I bought a G2 on an interim basis, and I put an order in for a G4. Okay. Um, and learned all about the aviation business, corporate aviation business, from that.
1: <laughs> Just wherever you're needed. So, you left Disney in, I believe, 1987, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Since then, you've had a, a whole other career, pretty much. Uh, a lot of work with Universal and with uh, other companies as well.
2: Well, I worked for Universal for another 17 years with them and basically did all of their international development investigation. Matter of fact, the project that they're now going to open in Beijing. I think it's scheduled for um, 22, I think, is spring of 22 or something, I think is their schedule, is a project that I started. They're they're dealing with the same partner and literally because of work that I started with them. But Universal was a hard company to, there's too much turnover in changes of management while i was there i think i was there in the 17 years i think we had, i want to say seven changes of management or something like that so oh, very hard to, try to develop yes. projects but i did enjoy working for uh, lou wasserman and sid Sheinberg, and in many ways they were the old school like walton and roy and to and I would even say Card and Don, they were very smart people, very good people. The company was very much a family company. In other words, like Disney, if you did your job and you performed well, you were part of a family and they took care of you. If you screwed up, you didn't make it. And Universal (laughs) was a little more tougher about that, but they could be... Pretty tough if you didn't know what you were doing. If you try to fake them out, they knew more than you did, actually. So <laughs> the guys who try to uh, try to make up stuff didn't last very long, and they or they got brutally destroyed in meetings.
1: Right. <laughs> well, it's always good to have somebody who knows what they're doing uh, on top. Absolutely.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And and I'll tell you, Lou Wasserman was a master of that. He was a master. He he knew more about the business than the guys running the business. Oh wow! I mean, about any business, any business that they were in. So, All right.
1: well, he, he was, was a legendary was, figure, absolutely. Yeah,
2: and it, and it was fun to work with him. They were both very supportive. I mean i I got tremendous support for projects that I worked on from those people. Personal support
1: well uh, we've gone through about 60 years of theme park history do you have any additional thoughts as you look back on all your adventures
2: well I, I sort of look back and and all the memories for the most part are really good and one of the things I always I learned a long time ago is that when I was going to college I was uh, studying at California State University at Fullerton, Southern California, and because I was working my way through school, I took a lot of night classes because a lot were offered, particularly in the business area and so forth. We were surrounded by the aerospace industry in Southern California, sure, and a lot of the engineers were all there trying to get you know, a master's degree, most of it in management, to learn how to manage large-scale programs and people. So, But the whole aerospace thing, and I thought about it a lot, I said, you know, I guess when I got out of school, I could have gone into the aerospace business (laughs) and made bombs and made rockets and made missiles. But instead, I ended up in the entertainment theme park business, and it's a lot more fun to watch people smile. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when they go, through, Absolutely. they go through a park that I was involved in. And, and so the industry I entered was really one about making people laugh and enjoy themselves. And I, I think every time I walk into a theme park, I, I look at the people, I look at the kids, I look at everybody having fun. And so the other thing I learned is that's why I'm still in the business. I still do consulting. And I still stay close to it. I know what's going on mostly in most of the companies. Many of my people that I worked with or hired are working in major companies. And so I stay in touch. But it keeps me young because it's a young business. You know, I I used to see that through the eyes of my children. And now I see it through the eyes of my grandchildren. And it's still a learning experience, and it's still, a, it's still fun, and it's still a business that uh, or an industry that I enjoy both from what I do in it and the fact that I can share that knowledge of lots of years with others and try to, and try to help them out. I, I just mentored a, a young woman who happened to be in my neighborhood area who came to me and said she wanted to be a Disney designer. This was about a year and a half ago. And so I had her folks and her come up and I showed her some of the work that I was engaged in and had done. And I spent time guiding her and I'm happy to say she got accepted into uh, the design school at UC Davis this ball.
1: And, uh, that's great
2: on her way. (laughs) She's on her way to eventually be a Disney designer. So there we go.
1: That's fantastic. Well, it's great. You know, you can be such a valuable resource. Uh, the experience you've had, the projects you've been involved with are such influential projects. It's great that, uh, you can still take part and that you can still, you know, help people out and be a real asset to these projects. Well, Frank, uh, we'd like to thank you so much for uh, being our inaugural interview here and uh, for being so generous with your time, as you always are, and with your memories. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, it's fun to do this, and I'm sure that uh, people will enjoy some of the stories and maybe actually learn something from them, but that's an obligation I think we all have is to uh, be part of the education process of Uh, the younger younger folks coming up behind us. So that's, that's a pleasure for me to do that, and thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: We hope you've enjoyed our sit-down with Frank Stanek as much as we did. It was a real pleasure to hear all these stories and, and sit with Frank. We'd like to thank him for his time again. Michael, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Well, uh, I would just echo what you said about it being a pleasure. I would like to thank Frank for being very generous with his time. And once again, this is something I've said to him in person, and I would like to get it on the record here and hope that everyone who listens who might know him would bug him about it, is that he really needs to write a book about his experiences, because we touched on a lot of subjects. We talked for about four hours. And it's not enough. Any of these subjects that he talks about, we could have spent hours on Tokyo alone. And I know there are so many stories to be told and so many people he interacted with over the years. So uh, I really hope he puts
0: it all down in a in book form. But I think that would be very entertaining. I agree. We, we have extra audio from this we hope to release someday. And I have a million questions I can think of now after listening back to it that I'd like to ask him. So Frank, get that book out, but we'd like to thank you all for listening. And we look forward to joining you again soon. Michael, what's coming up next? Coming up next, we're packing up our bedrolls and heading
1: off into the wilderness for a look at some of Disney's
0: frontier adventures. Yes. And that is one of my favorite homes in the Disney thematic universe. So, very excited to get started, and that will be in two weeks. So stay tuned. If you need to get in touch with us, and please do, our email is podcast at progresscityusa.com. And obviously on Twitter at Progress City USA, that's Michael's handle. Please be in touch. Give us feedback about what you like, what you'd like to hear. We are all ears here. Questions for Frank Stanick? We can get them to him. That's right. Uh, Anything you'd like to hear
1: about, anyone you'd like to hear from, and uh, any follow up questions you may
0: have about what we've talked about on this podcast in the last, just let us know. So, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks when we hit the trail.